Our experience with music is very personal, whether we are creating it or consuming it. This experiment will look at music from the ears of musicians, from the eyes of filmmakers, and from the hearts of producers, directors, and artists. In this podcast, we'll explore these deeply intimate relationships with music and attempt to define it from these unique perspectives. Welcome to Music Is. up there is a basic human need and it you know sometimes you turn on the faucet and it gushes and sometimes nothing comes out or it's a tiny drip for months you know you can't you can't control it and now I'm comfortable being like this is who this is who I am and this is what I do and then again I have no idea Welcome to a special episode of Music Is, where I join screenwriter, producer, and storyteller Carrie Schrader at her and her partner Amy Ray's house in the beautiful North Georgia mountains for a discussion about creativity, music, writing, and finding your way. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Carrie Schrader. <laughs> Novel idea. I am in one of the most inspiring locations I've been in a while, and I'm really looking forward to this chat today. I have Carrie Schrader here with me. Why don't, why don't we go back to like the first musical moment that you can remember? My um, dad was really into music when I was little, so actually one of the first memories I have is him putting on a set of headphones a lot like that with like a big curly cord and huge earphone things and it stretched all the way to the stereo, you know, and uh, a record was on and he'd just go, come here, come here, come here, and then pop it on my head, you know, and it'd just be me and that story, you know, that music. And I mean, I remember early on, of course, you know, Fleetwood Mac and some of the standards that we know. And I really remember distinctly one time, it was actually probably when I was a little bit older than the first memories, when he put on Eye of the Tiger. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's like, <laughs> as a little girl, yeah. it was like in my, one of my dad's like two long shirts with those on my head going around the house as far as that cord would let me to the Eye of the Tiger. You know, just thinking I was such a badass. Just and, juiced, like yeah. totally juiced. Yeah. Um, but he also introduced me to a lot of good music. Not like I have the Tigers and good music, but, you know, just a variety of different sounds. And we it, it was always the background. There was always some there's always music. So every place that we had, it was kind of associated with with images and, and a feeling, you know, that you get. And I think music can really be like that. It's like uh, this um, dynamic, deep hologram almost that yeah. can show you all these different layers to to your memories and to different time and spaces so that those were some of my first memories and then you know I remember the first album I got like on one of those little ones was the soundtrack to Greece oh right so you know as a little kid that was fabulous you right. know I spent most of my time at that point I did you know was putting on plays in the backyard that were like four and a half hour long and you know Amazing. I'd put a backdrop over the hedge in the backyard, like a sheet, just put a white sheet over a hedge. Yeah. And then I'd make like the mailman and the dogs oh, and everybody awesome. act in it. So <clears throat> to hear those stories told through music was, 
really powerful for me and really inspiring. And then, you know, my first concert, the first concert I went to, my dad took me with my best friend Erica was Prince. So we'll never forget it. I, I'm just picturing, because I do the same thing with my kids. Like I'm picturing your dad with the headphones on, like listening to a song that's blowing his mind and yeah. he wants like so desperately mm -hmm. to share mm -hmm. that enthusiasm mm -hmm. with you mm -hmm. and be like, hey, come into my world. Yeah. Let's connect. And this is the mechanism. Yeah, I think that was the way, one of the ways that he did that and definitely a way that then we, as a family, we didn't really play music. My, my mom has a really interesting story, which is that her mom sang and played piano and was a wonderful musician, pianist and singer. And, um, actually then ended up teaching piano later in life, but she was really hard on my mom about it. You know, it was the forties, fifties. She was really tough. So she wouldn't let my mom go out and play. She would put up a sign that said like, you can't come in until Lenny's done practicing. So when it got to us, my mom wanted nothing to do with that mm -hmm. music and the piano. So we didn't have a lot of lessons, but she also, despite whatever, she had a love for it too. Right. So instead it was, you know, more popular music and everything that we were listening to. But I always think that's a fascinating story about how that happens generationally and how my mom was just like, no, we're not that you're not taking music lessons. You're not doing right. any of that. You can do whatever you want, but we're not making that a part of our household routine. Because of her experience with like just the structure and rigidity and like. So rigid yeah. and just harsh. It was yeah. just like not positive for her. Right. And she didn't want to do that to us. Yeah. So now, years later now, I'm a mom and I'm like, should we get Ozzy, you know, piano lesson? Like I want her to have access to that. But, yeah. you know, you, you find that balance. But I like you do the same thing is, yeah. you know, putting on music that I love and making sure, trying to make sure that I'm sharing like that wide range of stuff, old and new and all over the place. Because yeah. it, it gives you, tells you so much about who you are in the world and and uh, who you aren't in the world, which is also very important. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And thinking about, so going, I, I have to I, I have to go back to the Eye of the Tiger piece because my daughter <laughs> and I, um, she played softball. She still does and played for years. And I coached her teams mm -hmm. like from when she was five and six. And I was trying to get them into this like game ready mentality <laughs> right. kind of thing, right? So I... So we started listening to Eye of the Tiger going to every game on Saturday morning in the car. And the first few times she looked a little confused and then she had like this grit face going and she got out of the car like juiced. Yes, so so yes. I have I have my own personal eye of the tiger experience. <laughs> I wonder if everybody does. I bet. <laughs> you know, everybody of a certain age and hopefully now the next are like, what is your eye of the tiger moment? I that's right. It's, it's, maybe we could just build the story that that's the, right. that's the through line is, is where's your eye of the tiger <laughs> Let's moment. Let's do that. I there mean, has no. to be. There does. And, uh, you know, for me, like I hadn't seen the movie yet. Yeah. I was too young to watch the movie. So it was the song that I heard first. I didn't even associate it with that training sequence montage, which now I can see in my head yeah. perfectly, but it still has that drive and that energy. And anyway, I'm glad it was useful. And well, it does something interesting, not to go too musical nerdy on it, but it does something really in interesting as it builds mm -hmm. and the tension and, and this little like thing, the, the muted guitar part. And then yes. all of a sudden you just get like whacked right in the face. You're like, whoa, all right. Mm -hmm.
So tell me about growing up in the Pacific Northwest. For the first part of my life, till I was like six or seven, we went out, we went on that boat a lot. And mm. um, I actually have so many musical memories on the boat being out there because it would be really quiet. So we'd often spend, uh, you know, the weekend on the boat or in the summer, we just go out and spend six or seven weeks on the summer on the boat. Yeah. It wasn't a small boat, it wasn't a yacht or anything like that. It was just like a, um, you know, <clears throat> a boat where it just with a small galley and we'd be kind of squished in there, four kids yeah. and two adults. And then sometimes friends would come and tie up, but we would put on music if first thing in the morning and just crank it, you yeah. know? So, and I mean, I really, I remember one time specifically where everybody went ashore to like go get ice cream or something. I stayed there and I had like Stevie Nicks on, you know, stop, or maybe stop dragging my heart around, but I just danced around that boat, the yes. whole thing. And you would just sort of echo on the water. And then, they told me like on the way back, I turned on the music cause I heard them coming back and then they got there and I just acted like I was just doing nothing. And they were like, we heard you <laughs> all the way down there. We heard you singing the music, singing, you know, it was totally busted in busted. your little, in your little <clears throat> private moment. Yeah. But growing up in Seattle, it was a really great experience. And it was also when Seattle was much smaller. And then of course, as I grew older, I was really there for the riot girl movement and the grunge movement and kind yeah. of early, like, ravey stuff, you know, in my twenties, which obviously was just a little bit of a big movement there. Just <laughs> but, a little. Yeah. Yeah. I was always a talker and always really in my own little world. That's what they used to call it. Like uh, she's a free spirit, which yeah. is what they call artists, right? Or she's in her own little world or she, and, and I, it used to terrify my mom, I think particular. And my dad sometimes like, I would make up these stories that were very believable. Like one time I told my mom that there's like this, neighbor had a dog and they had all these puppies and they died. I told her this elaborate story. And so she saw the woman at the grocery store and was like, I'm so sorry about your puppies. And the lady was like, I have what are you talking That's about? You amazing. know, so it wasn't always um, like this great, positive, fun thing. Right. <laughs> they were like, okay, what's going to happen here with her? So it wasn't really until... I got into a drama class when I was in high school. I was really struggling. Like, I just never went to school. I was like, oh, you know, F everything. And um, my family had sort of fallen apart. Everything had sort of fallen apart. And I got this great drama teacher. And she was, she knew I had done some drama, some acting and stuff earlier. But she really was like, you know, why don't you come audition? And then I was done. I was done in. But I didn't, That's what it was, yeah. I didn't know I was a writer or director then, I mean, I was always doing creative writing. I certainly got notice, like some notice for it in school. But again, mm -hmm. there wasn't really any channel. There wasn't someone saying like, you're really good at this, try this. Or even someone saying like, this is something you can do. And there especially wasn't, I wasn't seeing any women doing that, which uh, yeah. back then I think was a big thing. So even though I was studying Spielberg, I, mean, I was watching, memorizing every shot from movies and TV shows that I loved. I didn't know. I mean, I really didn't even think of it as an option until much later. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, so do you find yourself going back when you see people kind of looking and, and walking around kind of confused and like they're looking, but they haven't been able to find it. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself going to those people and being like, Hey, let me, oh, yeah. let me, let me show you what I've seen. All and the time. yeah, I, I love, I lo <laughs> not that I have all the answers, not that I have no. a, a th an eighth of the answers, right. but if I ha I wish I had someone like me yeah. back then to be For like, sure. dude, it's okay to do yeah. all this weird stuff. Yeah. It's okay to, yeah. you know, dig in and, and write and, you know, get into these worlds and make up stories mm -hmm. and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to 
man, your math grades are shit. Right. Like what, yeah. why are you, why do you not like going to class? And yeah. you know, it's, it's that idea of that conveyor belt thing mm -hmm. where it's just, here's the one path as opposed to kind of peeking around the side. Even now, I wish I have more crossover between music and film because I do love both. And you know, you are, you are sort of forced to choose or you're told you have to choose. Yeah, yeah I love seeing those um, people with that look in their eyes and then kind of pulling them in. Oh, and it's so fun on a film set when I can get one or two of those newbies, you know, yeah. and they just get, some of them don't make it to the end of the shoot. And then the others that do, they get that place of like, I'm home. This is me. This is a world. This is a place I belong. And, and also something much bigger, which is like, this is a place where I can pull in something bigger than me, or I can be that I can channel whatever gifts I might have to give to this world. Right. You know? Right. There's also the struggle to, if you really want to do something really well, leaning into that one thing, you start to realize that you have to be like an arrow and be sharp and practice to get to that target. It's not that simple. And it does take that. And, and I mean, I think when I really started to evolve as a writer and I really, really, like you said, leaned into this craft and started to study storytelling, I found, holy shit, like this is not easy and this is a lifetime of this. And yeah. I, I'm still humble to it. I always will be, I think, humble to this, this art and and it, you know, sometimes you turn on the faucet and it gushes and sometimes nothing comes out or it's a tiny drip for months. You know, right. you can't, you can't control it. So yes, I think it's a matter of, and now I'm comfortable being like, this is who, this is who I am and this is what I do. And then again, I have no idea. The last film I did, I would have never guessed that I'd be working on a story like that. I actually, right. someone asked, I'd be like, I never tell that story, but then here I was, and it was this amazing, wonderful thing. So it's like knowing and then having the openness and flexibility to then do wherever, whatever that flow takes you. Neil Gaiman talks about this idea that, um, number one, it's all about making great art in the end. But to do that, you don't necessarily have an A to B. You, mm -hmm. you have like what he called, like if you're looking out this window right here, you know, I see the path right outside the front door. But, you know, I see the mountain mm -hmm. in the distance. And that's kind of where I want to get. I don't really know what it is. I can kind of see it. Right. And I know it's out that way, but I might go this way mm -hmm. to get there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, that's <laughs> kind of cool. It makes me like feel a little less aimless maybe. or um, yeah. But just being more patient, I guess, is where you were going. Yeah, definitely take some uh, ability to be okay with the unknown. Yes. You know, just let it not trying to control it and force it. You know, if, when I try to smash those puzzle pieces together, it doesn't work. If right. I kind of let go and work on one little thing at a time, then eventually the whole picture is there. But it's a lot also of figuring out what do you say no to? You yes. know, you get, there's so many wonderful avenues to go, how, mm -hmm. you know, you, you do kind of have to pick one path and at least start on it and then see where you end up. Who's the best storyteller? When I think of great storytellers, I think of, you know, um, Stephen King. He was one of my first inspirations. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, he just writes the same book over and over again. But I'll tell you what, he knows how to write a story. And he always, he wrote this actually great book about writing called On Writing, which is one of my oh. favorite, I still recommend it. It's one of my favorite books about how to write because he 
he's just so knowledgeable about how to craft a story. But um, when I was really little, I started reading Stephen King. Like I shouldn't have been reading Stephen King books yeah. at seven, but I never slept. So I would either stay up and watch TV, which was always Hitchcock and Twilight Zone, or I would read <laughs> Stephen King. No wonder I was like so dark. I think The Hunger was... Um, my favorite movie at that time, like the oh, vampire wow. movie with Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie at eight. That was like number one movie in my book. Fantastic. So anyway, back to storytelling. But then I found, you know, really great storytellers in poetry, like Lucille Clifton. And as my world kind of started to open up, uh, Dorothy Allison is huge influence, such a beautiful storyteller, um, you know, who's known for Bastard Out of Carolina, but her short stories are phenomenal. I'm trying to think some of the more recent ones. I, I mean, I went on then to study, like I said, writers um, mm -hmm. who I really liked who were telling stories through music and started with like soul and went back to Prince and then kind of into more Americana. And I mean, I've gone all over the place, but um, and my favorite storytellers depend really change every month. You know, I read all the time. I have a book, at least one that I'm constantly reading and then devour movies and television. And so it's vast. It's yeah. a huge amount. And some of my favorite writers and directors, right? I mean, some of my old favorite directors are going to be, uh, like Ang Lee. He's not that old now, but I love Ang Lee's work. I'll pretty much watch, pretty much watch anything he does. And, right. um, is there, is there a set beat that a story should follow? Just general, I mean, it's like, like Joseph Campbell, I kind of Joseph hero's Campbell, journey, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely the strangest mix of old-fashioned and incredibly subversive, right? Yeah. So I have this base in, in that old idea of storytelling, which I think is started with cave drawings and started before that with just people telling stories. But, you know, whenever I go into the movie theater and the lights get dark, that's what I feel like we're in this cave and we're just going to see this story. I still get that oh, wow. connection. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I definitely believe that you need a story with, you know, a character who we love, who we care about with yep. lots of obstacles, a clear goal, you know, a main character with a goal we care about with at least three obstacles in their way. Hopefully yeah. one that is internal and external that is of the same, but, yeah. Um, and so I very much believe in that. And I, I think then finding ways to tell that in a unique way is, is then the, the crux, right? Is, is how to do that um, Absolutely. in, in a way that is unique. But as I've grown up, I see that everybody actually can tell a story. I'm not one of those who thinks like, oh, you're hit, like you're either genius or not. I like the... Greek idea, which is a genius was actually this like almost an entity or a deity who would come visit you if you were lucky. So you show up, I show up at the page every day. Yeah. And it may or may not show up. Yeah. Right. The genius or whatever that is may come and, and work through me. And then some days it really doesn't. And in uh, my job is the discipline of showing up every day. Yes. And so I love that idea. And I think that everybody has a voice, a unique voice. It depends how we express it. You know, people do it in a variety of ways. But if you are going to sit down and you're going to be a storyteller, I think you just have to know those basics and then practice, practice, practice. So that makes me think of like one of my, one of my favorite books about writing and the creative process is The War of Art mm. um, and just the idea of resistance, right? 
It's always going to be there. It's always there. And all you got to do is sit down and and start writing whatever. If you're writing a song, you're writing a screenplay, you're writing Mm -hmm. uh, an article, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I've been in those places where I'm writing, my God, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. And you just got to shut that voice up Mm -hmm. and just let it ride and and Mm -hmm. go. And uh, lately I've been, instead of, I think I spent a long time thinking I could get rid of that. I could fix that inside of myself. Like if I get evolved and healthy enough, (laughs) I won't even have that voice. And that is such BS because actually now what I think is I just pull up a chair for that voice too. Yeah. Sit on down. And the better, the, 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 I love Natalie Goldberg, right? Writing down the bones. She did that great book. Same thing. Like, just like you're basically composting every time you write and then you might grow something out of it or not. But if I can just expect that voice to come and also know, like when it gets really loud, then, then it's really important to go on because behind that is going to be the goodies that's the little nugget of gold You're you know she close. she always said like go for the jugular like if you get the thing like don't say that don't do that don't write that go look in the fridge time to eat go take a snack oh you need to clean the book then that's when you have to bear down and go for it yes so it's we're going through our own little hero's journey yeah. every time we write right Absolutely. or tell a story we have to face into that yeah. Well, I love the idea of of you know pulling up a chair. That you, have mm. you ever heard of Tara Brock Mm-mm. before? I don't She's think a so. meditation teacher, uh, guide, all of that kind of. Mm-hmm. She does all these great author too. But she talks about this idea of Mora, and I can't remember who Mora was, but it was this deity or this this thing that basically is like the ego, the, you know, the, the bad self-talk, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And what she talks about is inviting Mora for tea, mm-hmm. which is just like bringing up a chair for this voice that you're saying, mm-hmm. you know, instead of like struggling with it, hey, have a seat. We're going right. to get through this thing together. Yeah. I think that's amazing. I think then what I do is if I'm prepared for that, then I'm not as shocked or taken by it. Tell me about a, a story mm-hmm. that you wrote that kind of led you more towards like this moment of maybe maybe I need to be doing more of this like you got some good feedback from what you put down and you looked at it and you're like yeah I'm gonna do that again because I like what came out you know I was still acting in through college I got my BA in acting and drama at University of Washington and I had um not been writing as much at that point I was mostly acting and I had a group of best friends who I just adored and the four of us, you know, we just, you know, it was college, right? So we hung out all the time. So I was really inspired by some of their stories. So I started to think about them. And then one day I just drew some little squares on a piece of paper and then realized, oh, yeah, I think this is, these are like storyboards for for a movie. I don't think this is a play. I don't think, I don't know, but it's not, it doesn't feel like it's written uh, you know, necessarily in what, like a novel form or anything. Didn't feel that. It felt pretty short. So I just went with it and I don't draw. I mean, I still, when I draw storyboards, they're horrific, Yeah. but I did it anyway. And it just ended up being these little four short stories that I kind of put together. And then I was like, Oh, maybe I could film this, you know? So I went out and got my best friend, Sean Day at the time. And I hired the kids. I was babysitting that summer and like, you know, paid them with French fries and McDonald's. And we shot, for three or four days with this super eight camera and we used a skateboard and like I would get in the back of Sean's car to shoot these tracking shots because oh, it was about wow. these little girls and it was called boys and dogs and kids are weird. And 
I put that out and I think then I graduated from college. Maybe I didn't even, maybe like a year later I worked. It took me four years, okay. right? To make this four minute short film, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. But I go for favor by, you know, favor to favor and find someone who could do audio. And then I transfer yeah. it to like, I God knows what at that time. Right. And I was waiting tables, paying for it with tips, you know, whatever. But I finished it. And then I had nothing to do with it. I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Right. You know, yeah. I was still acting some in Seattle. I was, I was doing other things and, um, and somehow, and I never, I don't know how, if you're out there and you did this, it ended up on like a public access station in the nineties, you oh, know, wow. that kind of became a yeah. thing Yeah. and someone saw it and then someone saw it and someone saw it. And then, so I got a call, I was at work and it was women in film and television. They were like, Hey, you're short boys and dogs and kids are weird. It's won an award at women in film and television. And we want you to come to this gala and give you this award. What? And I was like, Who, what has happened? You know, wow. what, how did that even work? And, and it's not like this is some masterpiece short film or anything like that, right. but it was back in the day before there were tons of short films before Sundance was really huge. It was just yep. sort of a different world. So I went to that event and I remember all of these people there being like, so how did you decide to do a non-linear, non-narrative piece about blah, blah, blah? And I didn't even know what those were. Like, I was like, yeah. well, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about, but... Um, I built this thing. Yeah, it I just built, happened. I made this, yeah. But I'm always thankful to women in film and television and organizations like that because I think they really can help and be powerful and seeing all of those women do that at the same time, at the exact same time I had got cast in a role. It was like one of my bigger roles. I didn't get, I wasn't like acting tons. I was mostly doing like fringe theater in Seattle, right? Oh, it was like fun. weird yeah. shit that no one understood. Yeah. But I got a role with a friend of mine who was doing a short and I was like the lead actress and I Loved this woman, Wendy Jo Carlton, if you're out there, hello. And during the time we started to shoot, I started to be mad at her, like real aggressive feelings. And I don't usually get my feathers ruffled. And I was like, what is wrong? And then I was like, oh, I'm jealous. Oh, yeah. I want to be her. I don't actually want to be in front of the camera. And at that point, I think it was going through a big transition emotionally and just learning how to deal with my feelings more and be more of a human in the world. So I didn't really need that cover up anymore. I didn't love being in another person's skin as much as I did anymore. I wanted to be more myself. So once I connected that jealousy, then I was like, oh, I, I, I could be behind the camera. Wait, women do direct and write. Wait, what other women are writing and directing? Holy moly, look right. out there. And then oh it was like, gosh. so then going to the women in film, it sort of brought it all around to really see all these women who are doing it. And that is when I really turned a corner and started to pursue it more full-time and eventually left retail and like this other path and just committed my life to doing it. And that's when I really switched over. And so I started to go to school at night. I met Stuart Stern, who wrote Rebel Without a Cause, who oh, really wow. took me under his wing. And That's amazing. So it's one of those, we were just talking about like the, the mountain in the distance and going straight out the door thinking, yeah, straight out the door, that's what I'm doing. And you wouldn't have realized that if you let ego win the battle no. right there. You you were at a point where you were like, that's okay. I understand these feelings and what's going on. And I'm going to bridge. Oh, that's where I need to go. Mm -hmm. I think that is super cool. So that that's like a, that's like a monster pivotal turning point for you. Oh, it's huge. And I think if we're lucky, we have, I don't think it's even luck. Everybody, you have different guides who have come on that path and are like, this is this way also will, might get you there. Right. I don't know, but it got me there. And then you can kind of decide, you know, you, you, you're 
you meet people on the journey and you, you get these guides who can kind of help you along. And, and, uh, I certainly had those early on and they, yeah, so important to giving me the courage to say, okay, I can do this. I can wake up and try this again tomorrow and let's keep doing it. And so then, yeah, I became more and more stuff and I started writing and that's then when I started to write my first features after that and start yeah. to really delve in. Tell me about your creative process. So I write in the morning three pages, which, you know, came from that book, The Artist's Way, which yeah. maybe there's a lot of you out there who do that. But um, that's not real writing. That's It is, but it's not like, uh, you know, sitting down and writing a novel. It's really right. just getting all the junk out. But for me, it is about connecting. That's where I can kind of get past... I really believe in that left to right motion across the page, mm. that it does get that connection between your left and right brain going. So you get mm. those neurotransmitters in a different pathway. And then in that moment, you have a chance to change some of the pathways your neurotransmitters have been going down all your life, whether you want them to go that way or not. Yep. So I practice that practice and then show up. And then it usually in that something will sort of emerge of where I'm at, like what's the priority for me and, and what am I called and inspired to work on right now? Um, right. And that can be the basis of then setting up a time, hopefully later in the day that I've carved out to have more creatively right now. Often that creative time in the morning is brief. You know, I don't sure. have tons of time to do it. And then, I'll carve out time later in the day to write, or if I'm directing something, then I'll be to work on the shot list and the shot sequencing and the storyboards. I'm really obsessed with shot progression and visual sentences, you know, really oh, creating right. sentences out of images, close-ups, wides, you know, that combination and how it manipulates people and how I can be a master at that. So, cool. Um, but my creative process really starts with that, those three pages and that's usually where I get any inspiration I'm going to get will be then. And then also through, uh, exercise, right, right. Walking, being in nature, yes. definitely essential for me. Mm -hmm. I have to have that outlet when I get, get moving, then the things start moving. That's usually when I can untie story knots in my head or I can, new ideas will just come. And then I was telling you earlier, playing with my daughter is a yeah. huge, creative part of my creative process now playing with her and getting really on her level in the moment blocking out all the other stuff and really just going there into whatever land she's inhabiting or imaginary world can really open things up so I guess it's having intention protecting having dedicated time and space and then opening up and playing, having yes. some creative play, yeah. and then going back to the structure, right? Because mm -hmm. then you have to write the dang thing, and then right. you have to rewrite the dang thing, and then you have to get feedback on it. You know, so oh, it's yeah. always, it's that cyclical kind of focusing in, pulling on those cords, and then letting go, letting it sit, letting it breathe, stepping back, looking at the big picture and then going back in and, mm -hmm. and again, zero control, zero control. Yeah. Only showing up. A absolutely. Showing up. Show up. up. Yeah. We talked about the, the resistance piece and, and, and all of that. That's absolutely. So mm -hmm. I love the idea. I'm going to take that away on the, you mentioned earlier, the composting idea yeah. where you're almost like clearing the antenna. 
Yeah. And, yeah. you know, hey, if there's stuff in there, cool. If not, good. I did it. Mm-hmm. I committed to it. Mm-hmm. And then you're walking down by the river or something. You're like, oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, let's shift gears. I want to talk about how early as a writer, as a producer, as a director, um, does music come in the equation for you on a project? Well, it really depends. I mean, I can think of sometimes where the music has even come first, you know, where I've heard a piece of music and then maybe wanted to tell a story to it. I, I, I think there and there's some stories that I tell where I might be writing it and I hear music right away. Mm. There's other stories I tell where I don't hear any music and it's actually very hard for me to find what I want, where the music is in it. I, I have a really ver- huge range of experience around that. And in terms of technically where it comes in, you know, usually in post, you know, that's when you're like, okay. But this certain TV show I'm writing right now, I'm actually putting music cues in it because it's important for the time period and it's important for the vibe. And that's been really, really fun to do. So then it's just creating playlists and just trying to get in that mode. And the person that I'm working with right now on it is also a big, big music lover. So I do a lot of the hardcore writing, the actual going to the script and doing the writing. And she's been, you know, creating a playlist and we'll be listening to it as I'm writing scenes or shaping it and then putting it in there. I was about to ask you, do you listen to those songs actually while you're writing in that particular scene? You like put yourself into it, right? Yeah, and then read it or try to read through what I've written and be listening to it and really try to imagine it uh, from that character's point of view and then also and or you know later as the audience sees it what again what emotion am I trying to get across and is this right. doing it and is it propelling the story forward I'm always like is this moving the story forward is it creating the suspense or creating that suffocation that I'm using to put my protagonist in a corner so there's no other option and then boom they're gonna break free you know right. how am I working on that dramatic arc and is that music doing it? Is it going to help it or hinder it? And sometimes in certain scripts, television pilots or a screenplay, it it doesn't feel right to put the music in. It just takes you out of it. Right. But I think in some ways, sometimes it can be helpful. Mm-hmm. So how often do you get into a situation where within those playlists, you get them put together and you're writing, you're writing when it comes time to produce it, maybe that that track or that situation or that that track is hard to get or expensive or all the time I mean, yeah how do you solve how do you it, it sometimes also it doesn't work at all yeah. right and then you're in the edit and if you're editing you know i love like the walter merch um edit you know like who like stand up and be walking and like moving to the music and then come and punch a few buttons and then back up you know editing yeah. is such a so much about pacing it's about that those breaths and when you're holding in, you know, the, the, the beats, the beats, you know, the the beats, they all relate. So it, it can change so dramatically in post what you actually use there. And then I've most of my, you know, I'm on, for the most part, I'm an indie filmmaker, writer, director, a lot of what I write now in the last two years, the stuff that I write actually has a place. Like Mm -hmm. this is the first time in my life where I felt like, oh, I'm not on the outskirts. Like I'm now stories by women, by queer women, by people of color. Now they're actually wanting these stories. Right. Whereas before I would go pitch these ideas and they'd be like, 
well, wait a minute, like what's, who's gonna watch a story about a 13-year-old girl or, you know, all that stuff that here happens, happens. So what that means is that often my budget is really low or I'll be able to, like Don't Miss With Texas, for example, we put out and it was one of the Coen brothers has written it. So we had a certain amount of uh, notoriety or, you know, a little bit of something that we could say like, hey, this is, but right. we had a really little budget. So we had picked out all this great music um, that we use for festivals, etc., And then we got bought, the film got bought, the short film got sold. And then we had to switch all the music out because oh, we couldn't sure. afford any of those songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but even now, I think, and we did the same thing with the documentary that I did, The Founders. We had a lot of great mm -hmm. music in it. And then in the end, after two years of trying to negotiate music deals, licensing fees that would work, we had to give up, I think, five or six of the main songs and swap those out. Mm -hmm. And Charlie, who's the editor on that, also writer-director, she really did the bulk of that, really finding alternate stuff. And she would come in and have five or six songs that I could listen to. And yeah. that was... That was a tough one. Those are always tough when you have to lose a song and find something else. Yeah, and they were just really so left. locked and just it gave so you the perfect. right punch. Yeah. But um, but that's that's part of it. Do you ever, when you're on set, uh, I hear directors occasionally like using music to set the tone on set, not necessarily while you're shooting, but like to put everyone in, especially maybe with a period kind of situation, but. I don't know. I can't say that I've ever actually, like, with my actors or my talent, put on music and been like, listen to this and now let's act. I have, um, I mean, I love a dance party, right? So I am always going to have, you know, definitely on set starting the day with a dance party for everybody. And like me and Ozzy, my daughter, you know, like she's been having dance parties before she had walked because oh, that's, awesome. that's what we do, especially with if I'm getting locked down or uptight or stressed out or stuck, I feel like a dance party is the best way to unlock that creativity and also get everybody inspired and just loosen up again and then get, so you can get back in touch with the flow, you know? So I use it that way. And I hope that I'll, as I direct more and more, I'll have more opportunities to do something like that on set. I think right. it'd be really fun and that it'd sounds... be really great for the actors to... I, th I think back to this, you know, the dance part. I think back to you on the boat, everyone ashore, right. you doing Come this on. big thing, right? <laughs> so it, it translates uh, it translates to now. Pretty cool. And everybody can be so goofy, you know, and just like let go and just be really let it all hang out, be a dork for a minute and... It's so good when you can let that other part of you come out. When it makes everyone else more open to give. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So if you're on if you're on that boat that you were on mm -hmm. before, mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. no one's on it. They're on they're on shore. You people you think people can't hear you. Mm -hmm. What song do you put on? One would be Sweet Lorraine by Patty Griffin. Ooh. I love that song. I love her voice in that. I love that story. It's so dark and quirky and and hard i would also probably put on one of amy ray's songs that you know these are writers who inspired me that's my dog when i came back to writing when i really started right. to study so if i had to pick one of amy's songs i would probably pick one called rodeo okay which is a beautiful lungs love song and has an analogy about a a, a deer, a buck. Oh, this is a beautiful song. And let's see, the third, hmm, it might have to be 
Michael Jackson's Shake Your Body Down to the Ground. Ooh, wow. That's a good one. <laughs> That's one that will just, whenever it comes on, no matter what's happening, you're, I know. You're it's really like, come on, you can really have fun. So if you could shape shift <gasps> into uh, the form of any musician <sighs> ever, no matter who it was, it could be Bach, it could be Jimi Hendrix, it could be whomever. Who would you shapeshift into and why? Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. I mean, might be an obvious choice, not really for me or someone like you look at me, but just to be able to belt it out like that. I mean, what a what a amazing thing to be able to have to just like that voice, it doesn't. It's not of here, right? It's not of this world. It's of something bigger and deeper than all of us, right? To have that kind of power and be able to stand in front of people and do that, I can't think of anything more exciting or profound. That would be a heck of an instrument to play and just (laughs) be able to like fully express because there's no no, uh, governor on it, right? It's just like Mm -hmm. stacks or Motown. Motown. That's what I knew. Right. You know, that's what I, so I associate so many great things and great moments in my life with Motown. Stones or Zeppelin? Ooh, now this would be a challenge because I'm a big fan of both. I might go the other way and say Pink Floyd and just Ooh, just total curveball. Interesting. Just go to the dark side of the moon there. What got you about those guys? Like what pulled you in? Oh, just the warped absolute you know for me it was that some just pierced the layers of you know uh, just falsity that just like the <laughs> be everything that I saw around me once I you know heard Pink Floyd I was like oh right, right? this yeah. whole other universe exists of of um these something just much deeper that that can exist at the same time this like this other world is going on this like average kind of white middle-class world is taking place. There's this whole other thing happening. So what about Georgia excites you right now? I love here. I mean, right now, especially as I said, in the last couple of years, as we've really seen a difference. And I mean, I know it's slow and it's not perfect, but I, for one, am so excited about it. You know, a lot of people are more cynical and are like, well, change isn't really happening. But for me, I really feel Differently, I've seen a lot of change in the industry, and I'm a part of a small ecosystem of content creators here in Georgia who are doing really exciting things. And what's the best thing about it to me is that these are not white people running it. Okay, I just have to say that that is the best part like to see truly see people of color telling stories that are just exciting and phenomenal and. And uh, giving voice to so uh, such a variety of faces that we haven't seen before, that's the part I love. So being around fellow filmmakers who are in the industry and then and then I'm sort of in this sort of smaller, you know, being um, being a lesbian, being queer, smaller queer world and being a feminist to this sort of women's movement coming up. But it's just so yeah. exciting to be one that there's actually a market for these stories that's evolving, but to be in this small town, Big movies, we have all these huge movies, these huge shows, et cetera, but it's still a really small town in terms of writing and directing. Mm-hmm. So, so to be with, 
you know, this small group of people and seeing what they're doing and supporting what they're doing and them supporting me. It's, it's like going back to when I first started films where I called my friend Sean up and was like, Hey, I'll buy you a milkshake. If you come work for me, you know, that's what we're doing for each other again now. Whereas when I was in New York, it was just like, you don't have time for that. You got to be hustling, you know, but Atlanta, you can still live pretty well. You can make a living in the industry somewhat if you're in a below the line and then you can be creating this new exciting content. So yeah, I feel like it's electric and thriving. When Black Panther came out and seeing, just feeling the city kind of shut down and we were at uh, Midtown. I mean, I was on fire. It's like, this is where it is at. Yeah. I don't know if everybody knows that out there, but Hotlanta is uh, Hotlanta. Give me, um, give me two creators in Atlanta that you're, or in Georgia that you're really excited about. And they could be a writer, they could be a producer, they could be a director, they could be a musician. I just had a, the great pleasure to work with a friend of mine, Chris Anthony Hamilton, who is doing a short and it's a series. It's an, one, a short and anthology about post-traumatic slave syndrome, mm. his work and the work of, I think all of the content creators in that series is amazing. I think it's going to be some groundbreaking, really powerful work. And just working on the short film was a huge, fabulous experience. So I would say Chris Anthony Hamilton. And I'm trying to think of any musicians here that I really, up and coming musicians, I really, I just started listening to War and Treaty. Okay. Um, Very interesting story. If you have a chance to listen to War and Treaty and learn about them as artists, they're really interesting too. I actually just started listening today, but some I had been told to listen to them and listen to their story. So I have some homework. Um, you I can like listen it. to them too. Carrie, what is music? It's it's like blood. You know, it's like a nourishing river inside of us and outside of us that we need. I would put it up there as a basic human need. You know, they have like the pyramid. You have to have food, shelter, love. I put music right in there. Wouldn't you? I would. For more on Carrie Schrader, you can visit her website at carrieschraderfilms.com. She's got a bunch of exciting stuff in the works at the moment, one including a TV pilot that she has written that was accepted at the Orchard Project in the Episodic Lab in New York City. She also has a feature underway, and she has a wonderful consulting practice called Write the Damn Script, where she helps folks like me get crazy ideas out of our brains. Special thanks to TuneWell Music for helping provide some of the music for this episode. TuneWell Music is a boutique licensing collection of pre-cleared music with independent and emerging artists. Uh, More information on TuneWell Music, you can find them at www.tunewellmusic.com. Special thanks to Jason Shannon as the composer for the theme song of Music Is as well as Harper Harris for engineering and mixing this episode. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where we talk to musician, comic, writer, ad guy, Mike Schatz. We also talk to Samid Afghani, who is the general manager of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and many, many others. 